All right, everybody. Hello. It is Ryan Catherwood. It is Friday, 1130 East Coast time. You are listening to Alumless. Thank you for tuning in. It's great to have you here. On the show, we talk about alumni and donor engagement strategies and educational advancement. I'm Ryan Catherwood, of course, and the man sitting to my right on the screen and in your audio is Chris Marshall. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ryan. Good to see you. It's great to see you too. It's Friday, February the 3rd, and I am actually on the road, as are you this week. We are back in North Carolina. I am on the campus of beautiful High Point University, uh, my first time visiting High Point, one of our new partners, and you are adjacent to the Alumni Center at NC State, where I was two weeks ago. Correct. Yeah, I just left their alumni board meeting and walked over here to do this. I'm heading back later this afternoon, NC State. Great alumni center with a Marriott hotel 200 yards away. It's my favorite part of it. <laughs> Which is just amazing, right? Uh, yep. to, to have a Marriott hotel of that caliber right across the street from the alumni center. Uh, well, it's great to be here with everyone. Exciting show for us. I'm certain that uh, everybody will enjoy hearing from Howard Wolf at Stanford. Um, it is uh, great to be on the road sometimes, Chris. I know, I know you enjoy the traveling from time to time. Um, but when you are thinking about, you know, and you're actually at a board meeting, I believe this morning, I don't know if you've already attended or you're going to this First afternoon, yeah. but I, I thought it would be fun to talk a little bit about some of the board meetings that you've attended and some of the interesting highlights or occurrences that you might remember that happened at a board meeting uh, while you were either a consultant or just a witness. Yeah, I'll give you a highlight and a low light. But I can tell you this, that the number of board meetings I've attended is north of 500. Um, I can't give you the exact number, but it's a lot. Um, the highlight just happened. Well, there are several highlights that fall in the same category. When a board chooses to have their meeting, if you're an Ohio institution and your board meetings in January, say, let's have it offsite in Miami. That's a highlight. So that was happened to me last week. So I've had several of those where I got to go to nice places in the winter. And uh, that's always great. And great attendance, of course, when you have those. But a, a low light my, was early in my career as a consultant. I attended a meeting of a large public institution, alumni association board meeting, where we all came into the room. We sat down. They opened the meeting. You know, gavel came down, and they asked everyone who was not a voting member to leave. And an hour later, the president came out and said, "I've been, I had a no, vote of no confidence, and was off the board and left the room." And that was the beginning of my consulting career. <laughs> Yeah, so there was a, a sort of coup d'etat uh, in your, in your first ever alumni board meeting. That's a wild one. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, that's a great, good story. And uh, thanks to everyone who is tuning in today, Barney and Matt and Alicia. It's great to have you. Those of you who are checking us out today, uh, maybe you're huddled up as a team and uh, talking about alumni relations and listening to us in the background, or maybe you're, atten maybe you're attentively listening to us right now, not in the background, right? Uh, this, is, this is all front and center, of course. But, uh, but so, so, Chris, there's an interesting dynamic that exists around alumni association boards, the alumni office, advancement, and it's a little different at each university. Why do you think there's not more uniformity around how alumni engagement should be done? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, um, I think we're just all different stages. Evolutionary stages are, are different depending on the institution, depending on your traditions, your history, your funding model, your staffing and uh, legal independence or financial independence. All those things are factors. So I think there are general trends in our industry that we see over time. 
Um, but at any given moment, a single glimpse, there's some institutions that are lagging, some that are ahead, and some that are right in the middle. And that's what I think we're seeing right now. And, and a big part of it is how a board member or a board and its culture views themselves as a governance body, a management body, an advisory body. What role does the board play? And, and the line between governance and management is often that evolutionary stage issue where things are, which I think is why it gets to the point where we have places, people at different places and schools at different stages. And, I, I, you know, one of those places that have been out ahead for a long time, we're about to talk to you. So let's, let's end the chatter with us and bring in the guy who's a thought leader in this space in all kinds of areas. So let's talk to Howard. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan to me. All right. Well, it's today's special guest today. I think Matt Winston referred to him as either the Dean or the provost of alumni engagement. Uh, we'll see. We'll bring him out right now to see if, whether he likes that uh, acronym. So here we go. Howard Wolf, Vice President for Alumni Affairs at Stanford <laughs> University. It's great to see you. Good to see you as well. We're glad to have you on the show. And thanks for getting up and making us uh, first thing as part of your day. Uh, we, you know, it's good to have you. And uh, there's lots to discuss. You know, of course, perhaps last episode, we had Patrick Auerbach on the show from USC. And towards the end of the show, we were teasing your appearance. And Patrick, Chris, and myself, we all agreed that it would be great to chat with you because you're something of an alumni relations purist. Uh, we said this in a loving way, but I wanted to sort of ask you how you feel about that and what that means in your view. Well, I, I don't mean to be difficult, Ryan, but, but exactly what do you all mean when you say I'm an alumni relations purist? I, I've not heard the vernacular before, so I'm a little bit at a loss. And if I'm pure, does that mean people that do the, the opposite, are they unpure? I mean, I'm just trying to understand what you guys are talking about here. Happy to answer. I want to just learn a little bit more about how you're thinking about this. Well, that makes total sense. And I appreciate you pushing that question back on us to further explain. Uh, the, uh, I think what that was talking about was the connection with philanthropy and that alumni relations should not be connected with philanthropy. And in a sense, it's more of a pure strategy when alumni relations is on its own with further scope and scale and not directly associated with the strategy for raising philanthropic funds. Got it. So, so the structure at Stanford is a bit unique these days. Um, we are um, separate from development. I report to the president of the university and the head of development essentially reports to the president of the university as well. And that's been the structure that we've had for the last 22 years since I've been here. But, but without attaching labels of purist or non-purist, whatever you want to do to alumni relations, I think I would respond as follows. Um, I think what we do, this craft of alumni relations, is fundamentally a noble pursuit that strengthens our universities and colleges. Uh, we believe here at Stanford that a connected, engaged alumni body strengthens the institution if we're good at what we do, it makes the job of our development colleagues less difficult. And although you know you might call us purists here, uh, John Denny, who's the vice president for development, is literally 15 feet down the hall, and we're in each other's offices every day, right? So if we're good at what we do, it makes the job of our development colleagues less difficult. But but at least at Stanford, and I, this just is what works for Stanford. Uh, we don't do what we do simply to promote giving. We do what we do because it's a worthy pursuit on its own. So here's the thought experiment. And I've, I've talked to Chris about this before. I have a couple of thought experiments just to throw out for people. Let's assume for purposes of discussion that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation 
decides that they just don't want to be in that business any longer, right? It's just not something that they want to do. Bill and Melinda want to go off their separate ways, as we've seen, and they want to do separate things. And so they shut down the foundation. And so since Bill sent a couple of kids to Stanford, he says, you know, they're pretty good at what they do. Let's let them fix the world and gives us $100 billion. Just try that thought experiment out for a second. If Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation were to give us a $100 billion gift, we probably wouldn't need a development team any longer. As a matter of fact, it would be anathema if you went out to your alums and fundraised after receiving a gift of that size. But we would still need an alumni association. It would exist for exactly the same reasons it exists today, which is to connect alumni to each other and to the university, the university to them, making for a stronger university. So there's one thought experiment. The second one's a little bit more um, dire. Let's assume that the big earthquake that everyone talks about in California actually happens and the left side, the west side, the west half of California falls into the ocean and Stanford University no longer exists. I would posit you would still want an alumni association so the people who had graduated from that university could still interact with each other, maybe reminisce. I doubt they would be raising money to start a new university because the land would be gone. But I know that's a crazy thought experiment. But when you play those thought experiments and roll them through your brain, you understand, you understand that an alumni association exists for reasons other than simply to help in giving. And, and my, my worry about this, and, and Chris has heard me talk about this ad nauseum, my worry about where universities are going today, and there are trends here, is that we're becoming much more short-term in our perspectives as universities, uh, focused on immediate results, a lot of which has to do with fundraising, uh, that are easily measurable. Those things are easily measurable, and when things are measurable, people tend to do those things. And, and I, I fear that that can lead to a lot of short-term decision-making that could hurt universities' long-term prospects. We've seen this in corporate America. And we, the folks who do alumni relations, we need to be the ultimate long-term thinkers on campus, 10, 20, 50 years down the road. And so that's the way that I look at this. And uh, without using terms and, and labels, that's the way we look at things here at Stanford. Well, I think that was a fantastic explanation of your philosophy and, and how you're approaching things. Um, Chris, sort of following up, any sort of interesting sort of thought process? What was running through your mind as you were hearing Howard explain his thought process there? He and I, Howard and I have had debates on this topic, discussions, not debates, not arguments by any means, but um, I actually agree with everything he said. I think it's it's dead spot on. The The next question that we, you all know that we do prep, we have scripts for these things. The next question is actually what was coming through in my mind is that on the continuum of a $100 billion gift to the institution, to schools that have, you know, a very small alumni staff with very small budgets, Stanford is is further along <laughs> towards that not 100 billion by any means. They have more resources, more luxury to be able to do things. So, I, Howard, I wonder, and you and I have talked about this, but let's talk it out publicly here. Um, if you have the benefit of resources that others don't, that it's easier to say those things where most places are under pressure in the now versus the long term. Yeah, I, I I know the I know the argument, and I understand the argument, Chris. And you and I have had this discussion—not argument. We've had this discussion. You know, Stanford as a university is blessed with an endowment north of forty billion dollars. Uh, the Stanford Alumni Association has a staff in excess of a hundred people centrally, right? All under our auspices. So we are we are um, blessed with tremendous resource. 
But what's odd about that is as blessed as we are, um, we do worry about resources just like everyone else. It's just that our agenda may be larger, right? So, um, you know, Stanford, Stanford relies on fundraising just like every other uh, university and college in America. Uh, we're, we're pretty good at it, but we rely on it. So the endowment itself pays for well over 20% of the operating cost of the university, which is around $7.5 billion. And the, um, the gifts that come in every year are vital to keeping the, you know, the lights on. I know that sounds uh, disingenuous because we're such a big, wealthy university. But the fact of the matter is the, the scale of the issues may be different, uh, but the issues remain. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Totally fair. You know, that what is on our plates, if you're an overwhelmed alumni shop of one, is still an overwhelmed shop of 100 if you're doing the scale of 100x. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, totally get it. So, so Howard, I feel like I know some of what you might say as what are some of the, the things that you'd like to change about our field? Uh, what, what would you say are the things that keep you up at night? When you think about alumni engagement more broadly, you kind of hinted a little at this. Well, so if, um, if I could change anything about our field, you know, what would it be? I think we all need to do all we can on our campuses to make it clear how vitally, 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 that was three vitalies important alumni stakeholders are in the life of the university. I don't think we do a very good job of that as a craft. I think we get subsumed uh, into a bigger agenda, but I think we need to step back and make people realize, I mean, we all talk about this, students come and go, staff come and go, faculty stay longer, but you know, they oftentimes are acting as free agents or contractors. Alumni are ours forever. They are there forever. <laughs> Those of us who've been in the business a while know that well because they come back time and time again and share what they think. And, and, and the, the importance to which I refer here goes well beyond their ability or desire to be philanthropically generous. We love that at Stanford. I mean, Stanford has a phenomenal record of fundraising, well over a billion dollars a year for the last several years. Um, but in addition to that very important service that alumni play, um, they're our ultimate brand ambassadors, right? They have a vested interest in the value of their degrees, and they take that seriously, and they want their alma maters to succeed. That's a huge superpower that universities have that I don't think that we take full advantage of today. Um, and, 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 and as I've learned many, many, many times over the course of the last nearly 22 years, when we err, they hold us accountable. And you know what? That's like a conscience. And that conscience is a really, really important part of an academic community like Stanford or other universities and colleges who might be watching this, um, this show. Yeah. Let me jump in a little bit and react to comments. One, um, Howard, there are places out there when they talk about their community, X institution, the community, they'll say the faculty, staff, students, they throw in parents occasionally. And I'm always looking to see if they throw in the word alumni. So for those folks on the call, Check out your, your documents, check out your statement, your mission statements and your strategic plans for your institution and see if the word alumni is in there. I had one institution who had worked on a strategic plan for months and he said, what do you think of this? And I put it back to the president. I said, the word alumni isn't in here. And he was shocked. He couldn't believe it. And we looked through it. Sure enough, I was, it was right. And they went back in and built it into all the different things they were thinking of. So just in, I had another school who used to say faculty, staff, students. And then they had a president come in who said, you know what? It's faculty, staff, students and alumni. And that changed the game. It put everybody on a frame, mind frame that they're part of this community now. Well, Chris, it's one of the reasons that I don't like the trend of vernacular using external relations. Right. Okay? right. 
Because external means not apart, right? So when you think about the public, you think about government affairs, you think about communications to the world, I'd like to think that our alumni, although not on campus any longer, are still an internal constituency who cares deeply. I love that. Yeah. I, when I was in your role at Cornell, I never, I'll never forget this. Early in my career, I stood in front of 2,000 alums, and I said, the greatest part, the greatest strength of my, uh, of our base and what I have in terms of my role is that we have loyal, passionate alums who want to tell us what they think about the institution. And then the greatest weakness and challenge I face is that we have loyal, passionate alums who want to tell us what they think <laughs> It goes both ways. But you're right. There is accountability and a conscience that comes with it, and and, and you have to embrace it. And, and, and I like the way you just said it. Um, they're not external. They're an internal. They're a vital. They're the only permanent constituency of our community. Amen. And the idea of creating brand ambassadors, I could not agree more as, as someone who's always tried to tackle the challenges of engagement from something of a communications perspective, uh, you know, thinking about a brand ambassadors as a, a really important component of what we're doing. Uh, Howard, how do you all at Stanford think about brand ambassadors? I know we're slightly off script here, but sure if you can follow up with just a few more remarks about how you think about brand ambassadors. Oh, this is a great question. So um, I like to say that from 35,000 feet up in the air, um, the alumni associations at universities and colleges are the corporate brand marketing arms of those universities and colleges. We're all about engagement, awareness, connection, and good feelings. Um, and I think that's a huge, you know, that's the analogy that I use. I, I'm burdened by the fact that I'm trained as a business guy. And that's where I spent my first 20 years in the business world, right? I went to business school. I This is my world. And so I think of things in terms of business analogs. And so when you think of an alumni association as the corporate brand marketing arm, think of Apple selling the company, not the iPad, not the iPhone, not the earbuds. I mean, we're talking about selling the company. I'm selling Stanford every day, right? And if I can, ha I have a in, I have an inside sales force of 100 people that do that work in selling Stanford. Um, but I also have 240,000 alums who potentially could be the ambassadors who also sell Stanford. And so it's incumbent upon us. It is imperative that we all arm them with stories about our universities and colleges that they can share with others to share the great things that our universities and colleges are doing. I mean, let's be very clear. Um, the United States of America only does a handful of things really, really, really well anymore. And I know this is an international show, but I'm just gonna be very much a nationalist here. And one of the things that the United States of America does really well is colleges and universities. I mean, they make the world a better place nationally and internationally. I think we need to tell that story more. No, all apologies to Christine from Oxford who's on the call right now. Um, they do it pretty well over there at Oxford. Too. My apologies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Howard, so how do you think about the best way to assess the ROI of alumni engagement work? You know, we are we often use the term ROE, return on engagement, as another sort of slightly. I can't wait to hear this answer, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. So it's ROE, sort of slightly different way to think about the results of our work. So ROI, ROE, Howard, what do you think? Yeah, so I'm a big believer in return on investment. I think the reason I got hired by John Hennessy, who was the 10th president of Stanford, was because I was a business guy. He, he liked that because he saw I ran my own business. I was an entrepreneur. Um, and so I, I get it. Uh, and I'm a huge believer, as we are here, everyone here at, on staff at Stanford, I'm a huge believer in measurement and metrics. So let me just put that out front. 
but alumni relations is not a business in the classic sense of the word, right? So we have to think about ROI in a bit different way than you would if you were a business. If we were a business at Stanford, if the Stanford Alumni Association were a business, we would ignore 30, 40% of our alumni who don't seem to care about their alumni status, right? That's what a company would do. Like they're not buying our product, let's forget them. Um, but we think of ourselves as reaching, serving, engaging all, capital A, L, L, neon, bold, underlined, you name it, all. A business would never do that, right? Um, so what I, what I like to think about is we don't run this as a business, we run it in a business-like manner, right? And so, um, but we do that because a business wouldn't appeal to all, they would focus. I mean, that's, you know, the, 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 um, the antithesis of most strategic plans um, is, is such that focus is paramount, right? So, so having everyone is the antithesis. So from 35,000 people in the year, I think I told you that I was, that we think of ourselves as the marketing arm, the corporate marketing arm. And, um, and so the analogy I use here if you were to go to Tim Cook at Apple and say, what's the ROI on your corporate brand marketing arm spend? He would say, I can't really tell you. I can tell you what our ROI is on our spend for marketing the iPad versus the iPhone versus the you know versus other products in the Apple arsenal. But he wouldn't be able to tell you the ROI on the corporate brand marketing spend. So we measure everything we do. We measure things behaviorally. We measure things in terms of sentiments. But I think we all have to be very careful about the ROI measures because the fact of the matter is it's very difficult to measure what we do. I mean, this is what everyone brings up the Einstein quote, right? Or at least attributed to Einstein that not everything that can be counted counts and not everything that counts can be counted. I think that's really true for what we do. And I know that's uncomfortable for most people because yeah. our bosses are saying, show me your worth. I was just going to ask you that. <laughs> just going to ask you about it. And, and so what I do, listen, I'll tell you what I do with Mark Tesse Levine, who's my boss, the president of Stanford. I show him our, um, our net promoter score and all the stuff that we do. It's the ultimate question about loyalty, right? Um, I show him, we measure everything we do on an NPS basis. And we compare our NPS scores over time and against programs. And then every three years, we do an alumni feelings and engagement survey where we dive deeply into a representative sample of the entire alumni body to test sentiment, right? So as the name would say, how do you feel about your relationship with Stanford? And, and we follow this maniacally to make sure that we understand how we're doing. Howard, let, let me push you a little bit and maybe an unfair question, but I don't care. You can handle it. Uh, <laughs> what do you say to a person who, so you clearly have support and you've built a base of, um, you know, your gravitas at Stanford allows you to be able to partly live in the mindset you just described. You have a president, a previous president, and the current one who support this notion. What do you say to the person who is, works for a VP for advancement, who's worried about hitting this year's annual giving goal or the campaign goal, or even up to a president who may not have that enlightenment, and the, the, the alumni person may not have that, built that credibility up to be able to say, don't worry about it, I got it. <laughs> yeah, I I, um, I know exactly the question you're asking, Chris. So the first answer would be, I would say to that person, that's why I would be a terrible consultant in this industry, in this craft, in this profession, because I would find it difficult to answer that question. Um, I know you guys have great answers for that question. I would just say, if we're going to look at models in this world where philanthropy works, 
let's look at the schools that are some of the best fundraising um, organizations in the world. And I think in the top five, you'd have to put Stanford, right? I've worked with three vice presidents for development so far, John Ford, Martin Schell, and now John Denny, right? Because I've been around a while. Um, each and every one of them will tell you that the Stanford model works beautifully from a philanthropy standpoint, because our job here is focused entirely on engagement, connection, and good feelings, and making our alumni feel connected to the institution, feel good about the institution, and feel open to the university being a part of their lives. That makes their job much less difficult. And I think the results point to a world where that kind of long-term investment is paying tremendous dividends um, on the fundraising side. Once again, that's not why we exist, but we know if we do our jobs well, it makes their job less difficult. Chelsea, you go forward real quick, Ryan. Chelsea, ahead, yeah. um, measuring ROE via NPS, alumni survey every three years. And what was, you, you said, three, I think you said three things that you measure there. So ROE, NPS, alumni survey, and? Well, behaviors. I mean, we, we, we track behaviors like everyone else. Um, but it's really, you know, we use the NPS on everything we do just to get a sense for how we're doing what we're doing, right? It doesn't tell you what to do. And then what we do is we measure uh, sentiments through that alumni feelings engagement survey. We just completed our 2022 survey this past year, and, and we're looking at those data. And by the way, that's a great way to see trends. Three years ago, we saw that we were um, we were having some difficulties with our undergraduate young alumni who did not feel as good about Stanford as previous cohorts of undergraduate young alumni zero to five years out. And that was a canary in the coal mine, which made us focus more on that group. That's great. Uh, for those that don't know, NPS, Net Promoter Score, just Google it. Um, you can Google the term, Howard mentioned it, the ultimate question. It's a 20-year-old uh, survey trend that's been in for-profit, nonprofit uses it to measure satisfaction and customer support and whether or not you would recommend a, another. It's the question you probably all know. it. You may not know what it's called. It's the question that you get when you get off a United flight based on your recent experience on United Airlines. Would you recommend United to a friend or colleague? That's NPS. And there's a whole social science data set behind it on net promoter score if you want to look more. Howard, sort of, we got a couple minutes left in our live broadcast here, and I wanted to ask you about the changing dynamic around the different types of skills and experiences leaders in our uh, field need to have. In your estimation, how have things changed over the last few years? And, and, and when, if you were to hire another leader for your team, right, and someone who maybe someday will lead the program at Stanford after, you've, after you're gone, what would you look for? Yeah, what a great question. Um, an alum sent to me sent to me a number of years ago. You've got the easiest job in the world, which I said that is not true. But he said you sell a product, Stanford, to a customer base that already purchased it in the past. Our former students now known as alums. So I mean, what could be easier than reselling the same product? And I said, oh, you know, trust me when I tell you it's not that easy. Um, so you know. We are at a very interesting inflection point in alumni relations. Um, you know, how do we do what we do in a world with countless substitutes for the programs and services we've traditionally offered? In a world that is saturated with things to do in a population that seems to have no free time, right? So we've been fundamentally disintermediated and we have to figure out a way to intermediate it again. And so when I think about leaders, what I think about is, we need leaders who understand how to break through the clutter. We need leaders who understand the difference between a feature and a benefit. 
we need leaders that can engage across a customer base that ranges from age 20 to 100 plus, right? We need people can, who can help develop programs and services that add value to the lives of our alumni and make what we do relevant to their current lives and future dreams. You know, the, the nostalgia strategy does not work. I mean, you play off it a little bit, but the fact of the matter is if we're going to be relevant in the lives of our alumni, we've got to add value to their lives, right? How do we add value to the lives in a way that is distinctively us, right? Not something that LinkedIn can do or Facebook can do or, you know, the Aspen in Ideas Institute can do. How do we do that? right? At Stanford, it's all about um, content and community, right? Those are the two C's for us. It's tying them to the content of Stanford to help them understand the world, right? If you want to understand Ukraine, you can pick your flavor of news, or you can pick somebody who is seemingly unbiased, research-based, peer-reviewed in the form of a faculty member at Stanford. Let's help our alumni bring, you know, bring relevance to their lives. And, um, and we need leaders, as I said at the onset, who can show the value of what we do and the value of our alumni bodies to our campuses. If not, we're sunk. So that's all, that's all we need. I love it. I, I just said a similar paragraph to the alumni board at, at NC State. I use content and network where you say community and I talk about value add. It's gotta be, history, tradition, nostalgia don't work. It's gotta be something that's gonna have meaning for them. I agree, Chris. So there's a lot in a lot in there to unpack around content and skills to create good content and how to distribute it and how to track its success. Uh, but it's amazing how quickly 30 minutes flies by when we've got such a great guest on the show. So we're going to pause just for a moment, Chris, if you could share with our live listeners who we have on the show in two weeks time, then we're going to record a second 30 minute bonus section with Howard, which, of course, everyone listening will want to check out. Yeah, two weeks from today, we'll be talking to maybe the, but one of the tallest alumni leaders in the profession, <laughs> Todd McCubbin from Mizzou, University of Missouri. Oh, he's fantastic. Fantastic guy. But when you talk to Todd in person, you go like this the entire time you're talking to him. <laughs> I've not met Todd in person. I'm looking that, that's looking forward to that. It's always Zoom. a equalizer over Zoom, right? <laughs> yep. All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. What a great group of folks uh, on the discussion in the in the chat. Thank you so much for sharing Alumnus with your network. We'll be back in two weeks' time with Todd McCubbin. And, of course, pick up the podcast version of Alumnus so you can hear our second half with Howard Wolf. Have a great weekend, everybody, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, guys. Okay, everyone. Thanks for sticking with the Alumless show, web series, and podcast. I'm Ryan Catherwood. On the show, we share stories about alumni and donor engagement, have conversations with some of the best folks in our field, like we've we've got on the program today. Back with Chris Marshall, CEO and founder of CMAC. Uh, Howard Wolf from Stanford is still with us, which we're really excited about. But Howard, so how do you know Chris? You know, how do you guys, I know you guys are good friends, but there's a little bit of a backstory, I think, and how you guys got to know each other. I love this story. So, um, and Chris, correct me if I get any of this wrong. Soon after Chris became the executive director or whatever the title was at Lehigh, yep. he was on a trip to the West Coast and he emailed me and said, hey, I'm new to the biz. Um, I've been at Lehigh for a while, but I was in the coaching sector and I'm now in alumni relations. And I'd love to just kind of meet with you and pick your brain. 
And I responded, well, Chris, I would love to meet you because my not only did my wife go to Lehigh, but my wife's father went to Lehigh and her grandfather went to Lehigh. And if you know anything about Lehigh, not only did her grandfather go to Lehigh, but he was a wrestler mm. at Lehigh. And immediately Chris said, this is my guy. And so I don't know that we spent any time talking about alumni relations when we met. I think we just talked about Lehigh. Yeah, the, the best gift you gave me that day, not only was this, you took me to lunch and we had time to bond, but you said, have at it. And you went the rest of the afternoon, you let me meet with your staff. And that's where I gained all the real insight. Oh, yeah, because I don't know anything, but they actually know quite a bit. <laughs> and Howard, let, let me tell you that the, the corollary to this was when about, so I was out there, I was a former coach. I'm just trying to learn, sponge it, go out. And I knew the place and I was trying to learn the business. And right. you were one of the key meetings along that journey. And then about three years later, one of, I think it was your daughter was approaching college age and we mined our database and we sent a letter out to all alums who had kids that were of college age. And you got the letter in the mail because of your wife's affiliation to say, hey, would your daughter like to hear anything about the college admissions process and Lehigh? It was just a way for us. And you called me. And this is like, I, I, I hung up the phone. I, I don't know if I told you this part or not, but when I hung up the phone from this phone call, I was like, I've arrived. Howard Wolf just called me. And, and, and the question you asked was, how the hell did you know that? How did you have it in your database that we have a daughter who's starting to look at colleges? It was like the timing just hit perfectly for you. And it was affirming to me that we had gone in the right direction with our program. So absolutely. I remember it vividly. She did not, unfortunately, go to Lehigh, but she also did not, unfortunately, go to Stanford. Even he chose the lesser in- institution of both those places at Yale University. If I remember <laughs> yes, correctly. he went to Yale instead of Stanford. But she, we got her back because she came here to the Graduate School right, of Business. Right, she went to Stanford Business. Yep. yep. That's good. Well, Howard, I think it's it's fair to say there's some pretty amazing alumni that graduated from Stanford University. And in your tenure, I've got no doubt that you've had the chance to interact with some really interesting, to say the least, individuals. I thought maybe I could just uh, give you a blanket question, which is tell us a story about some of the cool people that you've met uh, leading the alumni program there. Well, I think this is one of the most wonderful aspects of what we do is the people we get to meet. Mm-hmm. You know, super smart people who are accomplished, who care about the world and and you know they pay attention to you, even though if you didn't have that title, if you didn't have this role, they would pay no attention. But they do because you're in this role. Um, <clears throat> my favorite story is uh, at one time, five of the nine Supreme Court justices had a Stanford degree. Today, parenthetically, zero. But we had five at one point, five of the nine. And one of them, and perhaps one of my favorites, was Sandra Day O'Connor. And Sandra is um, is just a wonderfully involved Stanford alumna at the undergraduate level. And she was back for reunion. So it was reunion weekend. And we had a signature academic event on a Friday morning. And the next morning, on a Saturday morning, we're going to have an even bigger event in the basketball arena. And she was one of the panelists, one of five panelists. So we had this signature event on Friday morning. It was a wonderful event about technology and speech. And she was in the front row with all of her girlfriends, five or six of them. And at the end, I was closing the ceremony, said, if you like this, you're going to love the event tomorrow morning. In fact, um, it has a star-studded panel of five amazing people, including, you know, Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, 
who's sitting right here in the front row. Now, I hadn't cleared that with her and I didn't know whether people would want to do that. And immediately when I said it, just like we've all done, I knew that was a mistake. I shouldn't have <laughs> I shouldn't have done that. And so um, everyone stood up and applauded her. And she, you know, she was an icon at the, at the time and people just, you know, loved her and her service. And so afterwards, you know, when I closed the proceedings and people started to leave to go to their class lunches, I, I quickly went down, down to the, 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 um, the first row and I said, you know, Sandra, I am so apologetic. I should have, you know, sort of cleared that with you before I told everyone that you were in the house. And she looked at me in a very stern way and she said, I'm fine with that. And then she poked me in the chest and said, but I'm not fine with what two of those faculty members had to say about technology and speech. She goes, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'd love to talk to you, but I'm going to go talk to them. And she went right up the stairs onto the stage to tell them what she thought about their position on technology and speech. By the way, something 15 years later, we're still talking about. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, what a cool job. I yeah. just got poked in the chest by a Supreme Court justice who was mad at me for the program that we put on. So, um, you know, I, I think about something like that. And where else would you have that experience? What a wonderful, wonderful um, role we play um, on our campuses. Howard, do you remember uh, real quick uh, d- diversion here from Ryan's script? But uh, when when Hamilton first hit Broadway, tickets were impossible to get. Somebody in the Stanford alumni base was a producer or involved somehow in the program, and you had an event where it was a, a private audience of all Stanford alums to see Hamilton when it was in its glory in early stage. Is that a correct memory I have? Yes, yes, we had um, we had one of our alums who was fundamental um, part of that show, and um, and we were able to rent out the entire. Um, the, the entire theater for a, a Stanford version of this. We and by the way, we do this a, a lot of places where you know a show comes to San Francisco and we'll we'll rent out the whole uh, you know because we have such a big base here. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I don't think it necessarily takes um, those inside. We had an inside person in this case, but uh, I found that most of these theaters will work with you on something like that. And then yeah. what we do for those events is. Um, like we're doing something up in San Francisco for six, um, what they'll do is we'll bring someone from our drama department, right? right. Um, or or someone related, and they'll they'll talk about it beforehand. We'll have a cocktail hour, and then everyone goes into the show. Love it, love it. Yeah, it, we we have a uh, we are very fortunate with the nature of our alumni body. We have some amazing people who just um, give me hope for the future. So one of the other signatures I've followed in your career there has been your um, support and partnership you've had with uh, ed tech, educa- you know, technology companies in general, but ed tech specifically. And I've seen you partner with a few. I've seen you, you know, privately say this place, this technology is crazy. This one's the way to go. And other times where you've partnered closely. Tell us a story about where where a partnership came along and you thought had a an impact on your work that you're doing there. Yeah. Well, and by the way, Chris, um, I, I think my tombstone will read, he tried to get technology right, but he really didn't. Um, so, so yes, I, I have many opinions, but uh, rarely am I right. Uh, so let me tell you one story that's fun. I started in 2001, and in 2002, two students, an undergraduate and a graduate student, came to me, and they said, uh, listen, we've been trying to promote this, this site on campus. Remember, this is 2002. Yeah. So um, on campus, it's called Club Nexus. And it's a way for students to meet each other and date. And we're getting some traction, but not the kind of traction we really want. Um, But we think it could be really cool for alumni circles. And I said, I can't believe this isn't working on campus. 
And, and maybe the user interface wasn't as elegant as what came out two years later with Facebook, uh, but it was a predecessor to Facebook, right? And so then we incubated it here and created, uh, with the help of investors, uh, what then became known as InCircle. And InCircle was a private garden social network for alumni, and it rolled out to many, many campuses um, You know, two years before Facebook hit. Of course, it wasn't as powerful, it didn't do as well, et cetera. But I look back on that, and Tyler Zeman, class of 02, was the guy that, um, that created it with Orchid, whose last name I cannot recall, but I remember it being very long and difficult to pronounce. Um, those two guys have went on to great careers in the tech sector. Orchid went to Google and actually created a social network called Orchid. Um, so, you know, this is Silicon Valley here, so we see a lot of these things. But I guess the biggest thing that we've done, um, Chris, is that over the last six years, literally this has taken six years, we have implemented what we call ADAPT here at Stanford. That's an acronym that stands for Alumni and Development Application Platform Transition. In essence, we had an old legacy um, system on an old relational database that was held here, and we wanted to move everything in the cloud with Salesforce as the engine. And we have spent six years mm. um, putting 40 different puzzle pieces together, many of which are best in class, like a Cvent, uh, Marketo um, for marketing, et cetera. And we're going to actually, and I'm praying in front of you right here with my hands up. We'll we're join gonna, you. We're going to complete this. Thank you. We're going to complete this come this summer. And I think it'll be a game changer for us. It's already a game changer yeah. in terms of what it's able to do for us. Um, listen, I, I, I think that we all have to acknowledge that with the sizes of our alumni body, you know, ours is 240,000. Look at Michigan with what, 500,000 alums? Yeah, I just saw a stat in uh, Indiana, Penn State with 780,000 was the big numbers I saw the top two. So if we want impact at scale, yeah, like at scale, uh, big word here in Silicon Valley, we have to leverage technology. We, we just won't be able to do it. So, uh, you know, we're working um, on the on the clubs and groups side uh, with Hivebright out of Paris, which we've bolted onto the Salesforce engine. And I'm using that for a way to kind of um, have virtual experiences for our clubs and chapters and groups. Um, we believe strongly that technology is one of the solutions to meeting our mission especially at scale. I was just going to ask you if I could to sort of follow up on groups because now we're definitely off script, but I feel like everyone needs lands at groups as a really important component, whether it's affinity-based groups, identity-based groups, uh, athletics in uniting folks around different types of groups, but moderating groups and leading groups is challenging and difficult, right? Whenever I've led a group discussion I've always felt like I needed to prepare for it and, you know, really invest myself in make, making sure an ongoing dialogue occurred. How do you think about groups and, and how do you think about how the sort of the need not to get people just to join them and have them as an option, but also to get people to, you know, facilitate groups as volunteers and, and to lead groups? So we, we are very, very definitive in the way that we look at this. Um, we will only engage and support groups that have enough volunteer energy, savvy, and desire um, that we think is necessary to make a group successful. We, you know, we have a large staff, but we don't have a staff. No one has a staff large enough to keep all these groups alive centrally. It has to be 
volunteer driven. And when we see that volunteer energy, we're on board. When we don't, um, we just say this doesn't make sense. We want to provide them with a technology solution that makes their lives easier as volunteers, spinning these things up, having interactions, um, being able to market their programs and services. Um, so that's the way that we look at it. But it's very much volunteer driven. Anything exciting right. in the ed tech space for alumni engagement that you see coming? Um, you know, so we've had uh, see coming. We, we I don't think this is seeing coming, but it's come. Um, we've had great success with the Bright Crowd books. And, um, you know, this is T.J. Duane's uh, world. Um, you know, he's he shares the allegiance of many, um, right? Because he went to Cornell undergraduate. Harvard, Stanford, Harvard right? Law School and then Stanford's Graduate School of Business. He's highly uneducated. Um, <laughs> and T.J. has been a phenomenal um, partner in this world. Um, we love these class books. They're so ridiculously easy to spin up. I mean, you have to market them and get people to know about them. But once someone wants to input a page, uh, you can do it on your phone. I just had my reunion a couple of years ago, <clears throat> my 40th. And um, I was able to do my class book page in like 10 minutes on my phone while waiting in line at a Mexican restaurant. I mean, it was it was amazingly easy. And we um, they're, they're really quite robust. And the, the clubs that use it, the class groups that use it, fraternities and sororities. I mean, we're seeing all kinds of use cases. Uh, it's really quite something. I think we'll do on the Stanford campus this year, we'll probably do north of 60 or 70 of those books. Wow. Wow. Um, follow up. Uh, you have often been the inspiration for many other schools to mimic and take ideas from. And some of them you just described technology wise. Net Promoter Score was one I knew you were the pioneer on in the alumni space and many schools followed, including us at Cornell. Um, but have there been things that you've seen at other places that have inspired you and has shaped the work that you've done at Stanford? I love this question. So um, before coming here, I was an entrepreneur in the publishing and technology space, so the intersection of publishing and technology, and um, a small shop, you know, never got bigger before we sold it, but it got 12 people. It was tiny. And we were taking on the big boys. And so I was a huge believer in guerrilla marketing, right? What can you do if you're small? to take on the big guys. Well, now we're sort of a big guy in the, in the craft. And I realized, so I've looked at that from, I knew what it was to be small and look up to the big guys and realize that they were a bit moribund. They were a bit slow. They were a bit sort of um, bureaucratic. And um, we had all the fresh ideas and they would then steal our ideas. So now that we're the big guys, I don't think that we're bureaucratic and slow and stale and all that, but we're big, right? And um, we look at the smaller shops all over the country to get a sense for where the innovation's coming, what new ideas that we haven't thought about, the guerrilla marketing outputs that people are doing with such little resource. Uh, we look at this all the time and we're not above borrowing, perhaps stealing. Copy. Stealing everything? Yeah, stealing everything with, with permissions, of course. Uh, we love this, right? Uh, it's the reason that I go to the Pequot conference, right? I'm one of the bigger schools at Pequot, the Association of Private College and University Alumni Directors. I think that, Chris, you were one of the founders of that group. I came um, right after the founders, but I was in the early stages. You were in the early stages. One of the reasons I go to that, that you know, yeah, I can learn something from USC and Columbia and Harvard, but man, I can learn something amazing from WashU, right? Or I can learn something amazing from uh, TCU, 
right? Because they're smaller staffs and they're running lean and they've got, you know, under the heading of necessity as the mother of invention, mm-hmm. they got necessity. And yep. we learned a lot. So I, I don't know that I could pinpoint Chris um, specific programs, but we look for learnings anywhere we can find them. I think it's, you know, it's, it, I, I tell a funny story. I've been in three industries, the commercial real estate industry, the publishing industry, and now alumni affairs. In commercial real estate industry, everyone shared everything with each other, even competitors. The only problem is everyone lied. Okay. In the publishing industry, everyone was honest as the day was long. They just wouldn't share because they felt competitive. One of the beauties about the alumni relations craft, at least in my opinion, is that people share willingly because for the most part, we're not deeply in competition with each other. Sure, we can have dual degree people. Someone went to Lehigh and then went to Stanford's Graduate School of Business. Um, But I think that competition tends to be more on the philanthropic side. On our side, I don't see that competition as much. And I love the fact that in our craft, people are so sharing. Yeah, agreed. It's like uh, those meetings, in my my experience, I did it for seven years at Lehigh, five at Cornell. I consider those biannual meetings therapy sessions for me. (laughs) 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 Learning and therapy. Well, I mean, Howard, you expressed a couple of different things that you're working on and a few things actually that were coming to fruition, right? After some amount of time that you, you've been working for the te- technology integration, particularly, it sounds like something that has kept you up at night from time to time, uh, making sure it all goes smoothly. Uh, is there anything that sort of stands out as keeps you up at night about doing alumni engagement at Stanford? Yes. Today, I am obsessed with Gen Z. And and I'll I'll share why. And that doesn't mean that Gen Z is a problem. I I love Gen Z. I think many of the things that define Gen Z are wonderful, but they aren't necessarily wonderful for what we do. So um, there's a great book written by uh, a number of Stanford scholars came out a year or so ago called Gen Z Explained. And I highly recommend it to anyone that's in our craft because it does a good job of explaining what's going on. So for instance, Gen Z folks, uh, the people on this call, Ryan, you and I, and Chris, and perhaps the majority of the people that might be listening probably believe that institutions are no longer as strong as they used to be. We don't trust them as much as we used to, right? Um, But we believe that given the right circumstances, institutions can, in fact, create change that's positive. Gen Z fundamentally believes that institutions serve no purpose in society today. I mean, that's an overstatement, but they've given up all hope. You know, we may have concerns about the Supreme Court, the Congress, the EPA, the UN, but we think given the right circumstances, they can come and be strong and prevail again. Gen Z says, forget it. Look around the world. Institutions haven't worked. Okay. Number two is we might think of leadership as a steep pyramid or something that's a little bit flatter. But there's something at the top, right? Um, Gen Z thinks that the analogy that this book uses that I love is Gen Z looks at leadership like a Google Doc. You pop in when you can add value or make a comment or uh, make a change, and you pop out when you can't do that anymore. The collective leads in the document. That's leadership. Well, just stop and pause and think about universities. Defined institutions with defined leadership structure. That's kind of anathema mm-hmm. to what Gen Z likes. Um, so, and you can go into other things about Gen Z, you know, with regards to identity and religion and, um, you know, 
wellness over achievement. I mean, you can go on to all these different things, but when you read that book, you'll realize that the young people that were graduating today are probably going to feel less of a sense of connection to our institutions than prior generations, just based on the makeup of what they value. That doesn't mean what they value is right or wrong. I mean, many of the things they value um, make total sense. I mean, they, they value their wellness over their achievement. And, you know, my generation, I mean, we didn't care about our wellness. We wanted to achieve. And there were a lot of, um, you know, terrible things that happened to people in my generation pursuing achievement at, at any cost. Uh, it just means that I think that we're going to have a different relationship as a university with Gen Z. And I think I think we are all in the position of finding out how can we be relevant in the lives of Gen Z alums? They're going to look for something different from us. And I think we got to figure that out and provide it to them. Howard, I have a, a title of your next book based on what you just said, how to solve that problem. We need wiki leadership. And there's a the title of your book, write a book on how do you become a leader that allows everyone to put input on how you lead and what you do as an organization. Yeah. Like Wikipedia. Yeah. I love it. Yep. So Howard, we always like to wrap up our show with a question about inspiration because I feel like it's important. And sometimes those folks who are in our line of work uh, can feel overworked and underappreciated from time to time and, and are often looking for points of inspiration. He to... has the easiest job of anybody at Stanford, Ryan. That's what we've already heard that. It's been established. <laughs> we have we have established that. For, for those people who do not have such a cake job like like Howard has at uh, Stanford, you know, where, where do you what where do you point them towards some inspiration? Inspiration in terms of things that we've done or tell me more. No, I think more in terms of what inspires you, something you've read, something that you've listened to, uh, um, other leaders in our field, work-related inspiration, I think. Oh, so um, I am a, um, I'm a carnivore of all kinds of inputs from various and sundry places. And um, it's one of the things I love about this job because you interact with so many different people that come at things from different vectors. Um, I'm a podcast um, nut. Uh, whenever I walk the dog, I'm listening to podcasts. You know, I do politics, the 11th hour. I do the world, you know, I think about the world with the daily or Ezra Klein. Um, I love business and economic stuff. So Freakonomics Radio is cool for that. Social psychology, I highly recommend Hidden Brain. It's not only because Shankar Vedantin is a Stanford alum and currently on the Stanford Alumni Association Board of Directors, but boy, you want to sort of hit yourself on the side of the head. Uh, Health Huberman Lab is a good one. Um, but for snarky stuff um, is Pivot from New York Magazine. And that includes Scott Galloway, who writes a lot about higher ed. And I think anyone in higher ed ought to read um, Scott Galloway and what he comes out with his blogs. Um, because I like orthogonal thinkers that make me think differently. Um, and so I like that. And of course, I couldn't end this sentence without saying alumnus, alumnus, It's so hard to say alumnus. We, we worried about that part, but have you listened to smart list by the way, that where he stole the name from? Yeah. Well, yes, I've listened to some smart list. I, I don't think I found it as funny as you do, Chris, but yes, I've listened to some. The, the George Clooney one. I did the listen one. to the George Clooney. Yeah. And there's something about Sean Hayes's laugh that gets me every time, you know, when they're, <laughs> when they're ribbing Sean Hayes, it makes me laugh. Uh, I think you guys are better. 
<laughs> well, thank you. Thank you for saying that we, uh, the CMAC team of, of Chris and Ryan and alumnus, the web series and podcasts are part of your inspiration. We, we, are, we have no doubt it is the inspiration of many, but thank you for saying that. <laughs> uh, it seems like you guys, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you. All right. Well, that wraps things up. That was a great uh, session with Howard. I hope you all enjoyed it. Chris, it's good to see you as always, sir. Enjoy the day at NC State and your walk uh, just a short ways back to the Alumni Center. And, uh, with your presentation tomorrow to the alumni volunteer leaders at High Point tomorrow. Yeah, thank you. It'll be a little Saturday workshop session with the board here at High Point. So, all right, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you to Howard. Have a great weekend, everyone. So long. Take care, everyone.